Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We're podcasting from Delray Beach, Florida, our hangout during our non-hiking months. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my hiking partner, is Tumble. In today's program, I recall my southbound hike on the Long Trail from Journey's End to Hazen's Notch. Tumble drove brothers Dave and Mike from Baltimore and me to the northern terminus of the Long Trail. We parked on Journey's End Road around 11 a.m., and Dave and Mike took off for the trail. They planned to hike as far south as possible over 10 to 12 days. Tumble and I started hiking together to the boundary post and then decided that she should turn back due to the threatening weather and the possibility that a downpour would make the road back impassable. She took a couple of photos of me in my squeaky clean hiking gear, and then we waved goodbye to each other. I turned down the road heading for the Journey's End trailhead and my three-day solo adventure down to Hazen's Notch. The road ended at a small clearing, and the trail to the Long Trail Terminus went straight ahead. I immediately started getting flashbacks to our 2003 end-to-end hike, except in reverse, which is very strange if you think about it. If I hiked backwards, it would have been easier to process the memories. The trail went uphill gradually. Actually, the trail was just laying there. And in 20 minutes, I reached the former site of the original Journey's End Camp. The shelter was dismantled in the fall of 2003. I took a couple of pictures of the rocks that supported the shelter, and the one that served as the front step. I thought of all the times over the years that were shared there by hikers past, including me and Tumble, and how the site now lay empty as the woods slowly extended its tendrils in a steady process of reclamation. I moved on carefully across the stream with the rope and came upon the side trail to the brand new Journey's End Camp 2, which I couldn't resist visiting despite the pressing bad weather. The new shelter sits west of the stream and appears to be a near replica of its predecessor. It's enclosed with up and down wooden bunks and a table with a built-in chessboard. I signed the register, congratulating the Green Mountain Club on its fine work. I also noticed that A-Bomber, a hiker whom I had met on the trail June 13th just south of Appalachian Gap, had written that she finished the trail on June 22nd. She started June 1st. Wow. The rest of the journey's end trail wound steadily upward through the woods, and in the heat and humidity, I began to feel the familiar strain of a heavy pack and leaden legs. As I paused to catch my breath, I was convinced that they should rename this section to the Are You Really Sure You Want to Do This Trail? By noon, I arrived at the boundary clearing, featuring the famous Boundary Post 592 and the northern terminus of the Long Trail. Summoning the emotion from my last visit in 2003, I thought I was done. I took a few snaps of the post and noticed that Harridan's nail was no longer there. Well, we owe him at least one. The weather continued to look threatening, so I took photos of the first white blaze and the terminus sign and hit the trail. The first mountain was Carlton Mountain, and the trail was in good shape. I started looking for the 45th parallel sign 
and this slowed me down because I had to examine every tree on my left. After 20 minutes, and just when I was convinced that I missed it, there it was. I took a photo and then continued uphill in search of the equator. Carlton featured a stiff climb to the top, including a two-tenth newly relocated portion of the trail, marked by soft underground trees, soft underground and trees tagged with blue streamers. When I later talked to Dave and Mike, they said they thought they got off the long trail and were on a blue blaze trail. The trek down Carlton was long and steep in some parts, and I kept thinking, how in the world did Tumble and I do this? This was a recurring thought all during the hike, especially when I'd stare up or down at a sheer face of rock. I soon got to the, down to the hardwoods and emerged along a grassy area above Vermont 105. Vermont 105, for those northbounders, is the last paved road before the end of the long trail. I took a close-up photo of some blooming fireweed and then scrambled across the highway and up the other side. The next ascent was Burnt Mountain, a 2,600-footer. Again, I started to puff and sweat and took a break halfway up. This was tough stuff, but the thought of a shelter, dinner, and a night's sleep on the other side kept me going. That, plus an anticipated screamer of a storm that I didn't care to be caught in. At the summit, I stepped out to the rocky outlook got a good Verizon signal, and called Tumble. She had just arrived home. As I looked west during, toward the gathering clouds, I told her I was okay and only six-tenths of a mile from the shooting star shelter. After I hung up, I hiked down some steep rocky areas which had me wondering how Tumble and I ever got up them. Again, as I counted a long downhill or a particularly difficult descent, I thought about our 2003 through-hike but we made it up the ups then, and I made it down the downs now. I descended to Shooting Star Shelter at 3 p.m. and was mildly surprised to meet Dave and Mike there. They decided not to hike any further due to the expected thunderstorms. They spread their gear in the shelter while I scouted about and then selected two trees near the shelter to hang my hammock. The trees were barely 10 feet apart, but I liked their proximity to the shelter in case I needed to retreat there in the storm. Shortly thereafter, a man, Itchy Richie from Maine, and his 14-year-old son, Caleb, came into camp. They were hiking north from Jonesville to the border, and this was their last night. Richie said that things had changed since he through-hiked the long trail in 1973. He was still carrying his external frame pack, wearing his old leather boots, and cooking with his metal pots. After I set up the hammock, Mike and Dave came back from the water source and said that the water pump down the trail was not working and that they were unable to prime it. The long trail guide said that the next nearest water source was one mile south on the trail. Dave found a plastic two-gallon pickle jug in the shelter and Mike offered to hike to the stream, fill it up, and lug it back. I gathered up my filter and water carrier and told Mike I'd go with him. He insisted that the two gallons would be enough for everybody and that I didn't need to go. I said okay, and then off he went. Meanwhile, Richie hiked down the hill in front of the shelter about 500 feet and found a small seep of stagnant water from which he filtered a small amount. While Mike was gone, I began to imagine what I would have done if I was the only one at the shelter. The hike to the stream is mostly uphill, and my pace of a little over a mile an hour would have meant a long trip out for water 
that would get me back to Shooting Star by 6 p.m. and possibly into a pelting thunderstorm. Mike was back in about 45 minutes, and Dave and I filtered from the jug. I told Mike several times how much I appreciated his getting the water. He didn't even seem tired. Tireless Mike then built a fire and spent the rest of the evening scurrying about gathering dry wood to keep it going. He also boiled water over the fire and cooked a pot of noodles. We all talked about hiking times as the wind picked up. Three more hikers, two guys, one gal, and a dog named Honey came into camp and asked about water. Well, the dog didn't ask, but the guys and gal certainly did. Mike told them about the pump. They camped on the rocky hill above the shelter, and Richie said they were in hammocks. The two guys emptied their backpacks and then headed south on the trail. The gal stopped by and said they were from Massachusetts and were walking home on the long trail. They had all hiked the Appalachian Trail the previous year and were using homemade hammocks. Cool. The guys made it back with water in about an hour and a half. We received a brief rain shower and then stared at a single bolt of lightning that struck on the mountain horizon in front of us. As it got dark around 9 p.m., we headed for bed. I decided to batten down the hammock hatches and close the flaps at both ends of the hammock and then climbed in. I wanted to test the hammock in the rain and I knew that tonight was going to be the rain, wind, and lightning test all rolled into one. Sort of like test track on a rope if you've been to Walt Disney World. Around 10.30 p.m. the wind was gusting and howling and I began to hear the pat, pat, pat of rain hitting the rain fly. The wind caused the hammock to sway, but not as bad as in sway down the hill and into oblivion. Then came some lightning, followed by thunder. Then the rain abandoned the pat-pat-pat and switched to a continuous pat-tat-tat. I hung on, waiting for something terrible to happen, but it didn't, and I stayed dry. I was close enough to the shelter to make a leap for it, but not close enough to do it without a frogman suit. Some slight condensation formed on the top seam of the bug net, but it did not drip. After about half an hour, the rain slacked off and the wind gusts switched to occasional. It wasn't bad. I fell asleep. I awoke around 6 a.m. to the sounds of Richie and Caleb packing up. Richie asked me about where to get vegetarian chili that I ate for dinner last night and then said goodbye. I got out at 6.30 and Dave and Mike were just stirring. We ate breakfast, and I watched Dave and Mike close up their packs and get on the trail just as I was finishing my oatmeal. Dave said they wanted to hike down to Hazen's camp today. My same plan, but over two days of hiking. I had no trouble getting the hammock into its little bag and was on the trail by 8 a.m. The storm had brought in the cool air, and it was dark and wet as I started uphill. I could see my breath, and the air felt refreshing. The trail continued through wet fir trees, ferns, and hobblebush. My route today would take me over the unnamed J. Massive, Doll Peak, and the 38, 58-foot peak, J. Peak. After going uphill for a while, I went down slightly and came to the stream that served as the water source yesterday. It was not a biggie. It consisted of varying-sized pools of water, none of which looked appetizing or particularly filterable. Since I only had 3.3 miles to reach Laura Woodward Shelter, where Itchy Richie assured us the water source was good, I decided I could nurse the water in my bladder long enough to fill up at Woodward. 
The trail immediately started to climb up the massive. What a name. It sounded like some prehistoric creature. And I took a deep breath and muttered, here we go. As I climbed and climbed, some views opened up on my right, mostly north-northeast, and I took some snaps of the distant hills. After half an hour of huffing and puffing, a hiker came up from behind. I greeted him and asked him where he was headed. He said he was hiking the whole long trail and had gotten on at the Canadian border that morning. I immediately checked him for long ears and a cottontail. He offered little more and asked me not a single question. Off he went, and I resumed my climb, wondering why mortality had skipped his generation and had settled so adamantly upon mine. I crested Massif and looked north and could see Burnt Rock, Bur I'm sorry, Burnt Mountain and Carlton Mountain in the distance. My next peak was Dahl, and although the Long Trail Guide said that it was practically at the same elevation as Massif, I would soon be giving back much of my hard-earned elevation before ascending the dollar. As I hiked down, I kept checking my altimeter and literally wept as the precious feet melted away. At least I would no longer have to say the word massive. Dahl Peak soon came into view and I felt a surge of excitement as I could also see J Peak behind it and to my left. I love it when the maps don't lie. Dahl was not that bad a climb and most of it was among my beloved balsam buddies. The trip down Dahl was steep and longer than I expected. At every turn I expected Laura to be waiting for me, and instead I got more steep drops, wet mud pits, and slippery logs to cross. Then, after all that, the trail started to slab. Slabbing is one of my least favorite activities, especially when the slabbing goes from down to level to up. The long trail guide said nine-tenths of a mile from Dahl to Laura, and I was convinced I was hiking the longest nine-tenths on the trail. On and on I went, now demanding that the shelter feature a swimming pool, air-conditioned lounge, and large-screen TV as compensation for all my suffering. I surprised, surprised five or six quail sitting in the bush beside the trail, and they beat their wings mightily as they achieved flight and streaked through the woods. Fifty feet before the shelter, a sign directed me downhill to the water source. I hiked down in anticipation of Vermont's miniature version of Niagara Falls. Instead, I got a very small stream with one shallow pool about three feet in diameter. I wanted to race back up and check if the sign said just kidding after the word water. At this point, I had no choice, so I unpacked my pack, dug out my bladder and filter, and proceeded to suck the life out of this puddle. Ten minutes later, I was on my way and dropped my pack at the unoccupied shelter. It was about 11.40 a.m. The shelter was exactly as I remembered it, a neat, three-sided lean-to surrounded by evergreens. I ate a primal strip jerky and a cliff dark chocolate nectar bar and drank water without a thought to supply. I also walked around the area to see if there were sufficient places for a hammock hanger, like me, should one happen upon the camp. There were several. At high noon, I strapped it on and set out for the feature climb of my journey. J Peak. The shelter was at elevation 2800, so I had a net climb of 1,050 feet in 1.5 miles. Are you ready, legs? Let's go. The trail came to a large rectangular puddle with coppery color. I verified it wasn't jello, which I tiptoed around and then went straight up. Very quickly, I was spending an inordinate amount of time on the act of inhalation. 
Thank goodness it was still quite cool, probably in the upper 50s. After 30 minutes, I broke out of the woods onto a J-Peak ski trail, and I could clearly see the summit station above, with a spiffy gondola riding down its cable. I wondered if they pick up hitchhikers. The trail went up in the open and quickly, now I'm attaching animation to this inert trail, turned right and re-entered the woods for the beginning of a climb to the summit from the west. Now I had some real rocky up. I struggled a bit but just kept plugging away while taking, taking deep gulps of the crisp air. Near the top, two hikers, a man and a woman, were descending. They were clearly older than I, so as the kid, I greeted them and asked about their hike. This was their first day out, and they were going north to the border. I attributed their good spirits to the fact that they were going down. I soon hiked through the snow fence and out into the sunshine. The remainder of the section took me straight up the ski trail to the summit station. I could see north into Canada and south to Mansfield and beyond to Camelsump, Stark, Ellen, Lincoln, and even Killington. The hike up seemed harder than ever. I sensed this was because I was out in the open and each step seemed a minuscule portion of what I had to do, unlike in the woods when your vision takes you up only to the next landing. I got great cell phone signal all the bars and called Tumble at 1.25 p.m. to report my progress and to check on how she was doing. I was having a great hike and I missed her. When I hung up, I hiked up to the summit marker and then started right down. A young boy passed me, yelled, nice hat, and bounced his way down the rocks. Oh, to have styrofoam knees like his. Before I went through the snow fence, I caught up with the boy's parents, brother, sister, and two dogs and the man asked me questions about hiking the long trail when he saw my end-to-end -end patch. I felt like an old seasoned pro. I kept my distance and followed them down the mountain, passing group after group who were on their way up on this holiday weekend. I wondered if I stunk as badly as I looked. My toes and down leg muscles were objecting when I spotted the junction for J Camp and turned off the long trail for the two-tenth trek down to the shelter. I arrived at 3 p.m., and there was no one else there. Now I was tired, but I jumped right into my camp routine, setting my pack down, checking out the shelter, and then looking for a suitable hammock location. I found a real nice one about 50 yards behind the shelter and put up the hammock as easy as 123. Since it was going to be cold at night, I zipped on the weather shield, then retrieved my sleeping bag and put it in the hammock. I decided to try the hammock without a sleep mat just to see what it was like. Next, I filtered water from the excellent stream in front of the shelter, best source since the kitchen faucet at our condo. After that, I cooked and enjoyed a nice refried beans with Tabasco dinner in the shelter. For dessert, I had dried pineapple slices. After cleaning up, hanging my food bag and backpack, I had time on my hands. Lots of time since it was barely five o'clock and it didn't get dark until probably around 8.30. Eventually, two young guys rushed into camp to filter water. They said they had got on the trail in Jonesville and had spent the previous night at Spruce Ledge Camp. Awesome. Then they said they were going up to, to hike up to the gondola station on Jay to spend the night. I resisted the urge to look in their food bags. I did ask one of the guys to take my picture in the door of Jay Camp. Just a picture of me, rough, hanging in the hood. A little later, around 7, 
the two hammock guys from Shooting Star came to filter water. I could hear the gal holding onto Honey down the side trail. After that, they disappeared down the trail with hardly a word. Weird. As it got dark, I climbed into my hanging boudoir. It was getting cold, so I snuggled into the sleeping bag, zipped it up, and was nice and comfy. Except that my back felt cold, so I turned on my side. Now my side felt cold. Uh-oh, the absent sleeping pad. Yes, the one that was now hanging in my pack, in the shelter, outside of my hammock, in the dark. I decided to ignore the problem. I was tough and quite possibly lazy. Then my right lung began to freeze in place. I began to imagine finding pieces of frozen lung in the bottom of my hammock. Plan B was clear, clearly inevitable. I carefully unzipped the bag, grabbed my glasses and headlamp, unzipped the net and shield, and put on my flip-flop camp shoes. I grabbed a hiking pole and somehow found the shelter without entering the stream or reclimbing Jay. There was no one inside, so I extracted the precious mat and rehung the backpack. Outside, I pointed in the possible direction of the hammock and set out. Miraculously, I illuminated the hammock and made my way back. My failure to do so would have resulted in my being found in the woods, miles from camp, face down, clutching a cut-down Walmart sleeping bag, muttering something about wanting to hang from a tree. I put the bag under the pad under the sleeping bag, got in, re-zipped everything, and everything was absolutely wonderful. I fell asleep for an hour and then awoke to the clear sound of an animal making its way through the woods nearby. While sipping on a glass of adrenaline, I decided that, by the sound, it was probably a deer, perhaps a gentle Bambi, out in search of Thumper. I grabbed my headlight and practically squeezed the acid out of the AAA batteries. When the sound went away, I was able to put back the headlamp and go to sleep, and I slept hard until 6 a.m. the next morning. It was by far my best hammock sleep in three tries. Yes! I made a breakfast of oatmeal and thought about the day ahead. I could probably make it down to Hazen's camp by 1.30. Then I would have so many hours in camp until nightfall. Way too many. I decided to see if I could call Tumble and ask her to meet me this afternoon on Hazen's Notch, a day early. I got her on the phone and she said yes. So today I was hiking out. I was on the trail by 7.30 and walked back to the long trail via the J Camp South Access Trail. Although along the way I passed the three hammock people with dog who were perched on and around a couple of tent platforms just above the blue blazed trail. I didn't even know that the area around J Camp had these platforms. I also passed a young couple hiking towards the camp who said that they started hiking very late last night and spent the night in the very small two-person atlas shelter out of necessity. This little shelter sits next to the road and looks like a bus stop from the outside. At least they were cozy. I crossed over J Pass at Vermont 242 and gazed longingly down the road, recalling Tumble and my end-to-end -end stop at the B&B &B in Montgomery Center. There were now five mountains between me and a possible dinner of mock duck with Tumble at the Chinese restaurant in Stowe. Gilpin, Domi's Dome, Buchanan, Bruce, and Sugarloaf. I decided that one at a time would be the sanest approach. Gilpin was a continual almost straight uphill with lots of medium-sized boulders to navigate during the initial ascent. 
As I climbed up, I kept glancing back north as the looming profile of Jay Peak emerged above the tree line. I continued to play the altimeter game in which player one, me, took periodic readings and subtracted them from the known elevation at the summit. It also involved staring in breathless wonder at the steep triangle profile etched on the white fa watch face. Motivational messages such as, you're almost halfway up, 300 feet to go, and keep going, you don't want to be found dead only 100 feet from the top, the implication being that a body lying prone on the summit would be socially acceptable, constantly broadcast from my oxygen-starved brain. I reached the Gilpin summit at 8.30, an hour after leaving camp. The area had a nice path of matted down leaves and small protruding rocks, ferns on both sides, and fragrant balsams. This type of vegetation and trail remained fairly constant all the way past the Bruce Peak summit. The air was still cool and moist, but the day was slowly heating up, and the mosquitoes and flies were becoming increasingly active. I enjoyed hiking through the woods, even when the wet, waist-high ferns crowding the trail soaked my pant legs. I sailed over Domi's Dome and descended steeply in preparation for the more vigorous climb up Buchanan. As I started up once again, a deer fly became interested in me and started a series of dive-bombing sorties in an attempt to get under my hat brim and sample my neck and face. At first, it just flew reconnaissance missions, but then it started buzzing in recklessly and bouncing off whatever it came in contact with. Its sound effects were particularly annoying, an incessant buzz that increased in volume, as if it sensed it was about to enjoy a rough happy meal. As the fly got closer and closer with every dive, I knew how to go with my secret weapon, my bug head net, handcrafted by Tumble. I slipped it on, sacrificing about 75% of my visibility, and the fly seemed to back off. It made a few more runs at me and then seemed to disappear. I hiked very slowly and carefully with the net on, and then as soon as I was reasonably sure it was safe, I removed it. Voila! Thanks, Tumble. I started a serious climb and knew that I was getting near Chet's lookout, which sits on the north face of Buchanan, just below the top. I encountered a very slippery slanted rock, and recalled this was the spot where Tumble fell on our end-to-end. -end. As I scrambled up, I gave the rock a little slap with my pole in retaliation. When I reached the little ladder leading to the lookout, I took off my pack and scrambled up for the view. Chet wasn't there. I was a little disappointed since vegetation now blocked much of what was once probably a fine view to the north. I ate a snack to stall for time, but Chet still didn't show up, and I had to be moving on. It was 10.40 as I paused at the Buchanan summit sign, and then it took me only 20 minutes more to hop over to the nearby Bruce Peak summit. That's when the party ended. The descent on Bruce was long and featured many areas requiring careful, deliberate navigation. It was no time for chit-chat, just serious stuff. And again, <clears throat> wonder that Tumble and I slogged up this whole thing. I endured another aggressive deer fly, donned my net again for a short while, and finally declared myself off of Bruce. Now the guidebook mentions crossing several ravines north of Hazen's camp, and that's what it seemed like. The woods were dark, wet, muddy, and seemingly dangerous. 
There were several straight drops down big rocks which required careful stepping and a heavy infusion of prayer. At one point I heard a man and a woman behind me and turned to see them hiking along with the man holding what looked like a cell phone. They explained that they were bushwhacking a loop involving the catamount trail in this area and were using their GPS to guide them. The woman had many scratches on her legs, so I questioned her wisdom in following her guide and his electronic Ouija board. They hiked ahead of me for a short while, and then the guy abruptly stopped, held up his GPS, and declared, This way! And off they went into the woods. As I went by them, I took some extra time to admire and be grateful for that wonderful navigation device of old, the White Blaze. The area I was in was very buggy, and I finally began to realize that I was very tired. I could feel it in my legs and whole body, as if I had met my physical quota of mountains. The rest of the way to the shelter junction was a slog. I just kept going and going until I reached my goal. By 12.30, I hit the junction, and figuring I had an hour and a half to meet Tumble, one and a half miles to go down to Hazen's Notch, I decided to hike down the side trail to the camp for a rest and a snack. The shelter looked exactly the same as we left it in 2003 with its neat bunks shelves within. I walked around the area and decided that it was hammock friendly. I read the register and there was an entry by some guy who stayed there last night noting that the Brothers Baltimore had camped nearby so I knew that Dave and Mike had made it at least this far. After 10 minutes I hiked back up to the long trail and started another vigorous climb up Sugarloaf, not quite remembering this climb, but knowing with certainty that there was a steep, steep descent ahead. I got to what looked like the high ground and started a long, winding downhill that made me wish I had retractable claws instead of toes. There were also some horrendous drops down rocks that appeared impossible to go either up or down, yet somehow I made it thanks to some careful stepping and a few well-placed butt slides. Right after I got to the curve signaling the last stretch which went up and down but parallel to the road, I heard a hiker behind me and we conversed as we hiked out together. The man appeared to be in his late 60s and was section hiking from 242. He was from New Hampshire and had already done the Appalachian Trail. He had left a motorcycle at Hazen's and then parked his truck at Jay Pass for the day's hike. We reached the Notch Road at 2.10 p.m., and there was Tumble parked under some shade. We hugged, and she took some pictures. I felt very tired, but very satisfied with this most successful hike. This has been a presentation of LongTrailPodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail. Until then, this is Ruff of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail, End to End, 2003.